to do two readings for us before um, Joe comes up to speak. And uh, we've got John chapter 19, verses 31 to 37 to start with. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on that, sorry, they will look on the one they have pierced. And then just moving back to Exodus chapter 12, verses 43 to 47. <clears throat> The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. Let's just pray for Joe. Father, we do thank you again for um, our mission partners out in dif difficult situations and we thank you that here we are free to meet together and to listen to your word and to worship you and we pray Lord that this will long continue and we just thank you for Joe and we just pray that you bless him now. We pray that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to um, be changed by you. Amen. Thank you, Sally. And if you have a Bible with you, keep it open at John chapter 19. Firstly, just greetings from York Baptist Church. Greetings from brothers and sisters there. And thank you for, I don't know if you know, but you lent us Phil a couple of weeks ago. And he spoke on uh, at the beginning of chapter 19 to us. And I think he probably then came and spoke on the same passage here in the afternoon. But it's uh, great to be back with you. When I was at secondary school, I was not deemed to be good enough to study for both an English GCSE in English language and English literature, as many of my peers were. No, I was solidly in set three for English, having moved up gradually from set five, and so English literature, GCSE, was out of reach. But for my friends, I remember there was one book that they were always complaining about that they had to study, one that they had to study for the big exams and for the coursework. It was The Canterbury Tales by Geoffrey Chaucer. Maybe you've studied it yourself. Well, to this day, I have to confess, I don't really know what it's about. Probably some tales to do with Canterbury. But I recently found a new level of respect for my old friends when I came upon The Canterbury Tales in a list of the top 10 most difficult reads. It comes, it comes in at number 10 in the list, and it says that Chaucer's collection of tales is considered one of the most important works of medieval literature, though the language and the vocab can be difficult for modern readers. 
So it got me curious to look at this list. I wonder what's at number one. Well, apparently it's a book called The Voynich Manuscript. Has anyone read it? Well, I'm not surprised because according to the Straw Poll website, it's an illustrated codex written in an unknown script and language which has yet to be deciphered. Truly a difficult read. But so often when we come to the Bible, we can feel that it feels like it's written in an unknown script and it can be difficult to understand. And sometimes there can be passages that are difficult to read because of what we understand. And today's passage, I think, is one such passage. Difficult to know what it's showing us in those few verses and also a difficult read because of what's being described there. It's a tough passage. And when Phil texted me to say, after I'd said yes, to text me the passage, I thought, oh, I wonder what it will be. Will it be the sayings on the cross? Will it maybe be resurrection? No, it's the verses that we've got uh, before us. We don't have the sayings on the cross because I, I imagine you've looked at those already. We don't have the glory and the, the hope of resurrection Sunday that we read about. No, for the entirety of our passage, Jesus is dead on the cross. And uh, we won't know about the resurrection until chapter 20. And yet, before us today are some real powerful truths that point us back to the Old Testament and from which I think we can derive great comfort and which I hope will embolden us as children of God. Now, I'm going to, I like to break things up into chunks to help us uh, as we're going through passages. So today we're going to look at three themes from our passage today. We're going to look, firstly, Jesus' death is a historical fact. Secondly, Jesus' death was a deliberate act. And thirdly, Jesus' death was God's plan. So firstly, we can be sure that Jesus' death is a matter of history. While the major accounts of the death of Jesus' death are found in the pages of our Bible, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are extra biblical accounts uh, that record the crucifixion of Jesus. And a New, uh, a New Testament scholar, John Crosan, states that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be, since both Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian, and Tacitus, a Roman senator, both record the account and agree with the Christian account that Jesus Christ was executed by order of the Roman governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate, sometime during the reign of Tiberius. And few people, secular or otherwise, who would look into the death of Jesus, historically would refute that it actually took place. But our passage today gives us more details on which we can be assured that Christ died. And at this point, it's maybe helpful for us to understand a little bit about crucifixion to really get the significance of the details in our passage. Now, we know from the account of Jesus, and you might know historically, that victims were often flogged before being forced to carry the crossbeam for their cross to the place of execution. And once there, the hands and the feet were fixed to the cross either by nails through the wrists and the ankles or by cords, and then the crossbeam was lifted up. And we read from history that victims could spend days on the cross before they died. 
Now, a book which I would highly recommend is the book A Case for Christ. I don't know if you've read it or if you've read snippets of it, but the book is, is written by an atheistic journalist, Lee Strobel, who sets out to use his investigative skills to, to, to disprove that Jesus was the Messiah after his wife becomes a Christian. And to do this, he goes around and interviews lots of experts in lots of different areas. And one of these experts is a medical doctor who's also got a PhD in engineering called Alexander Metherell, who explains how a person would die from crucifixion. He says, essentially, it's a slow death by asphyxiation because in order to exhale, the person, the individual must push up to raise their body up to, to let the breath out before taking a breath in and relaxing down again. And this would go on and on until complete exhaustion would take over and the person would be unable to push up to breathe anymore. And it could take days. Okay, so that's how people in general would die from crucifixion. But how can we be sure that Jesus died? Well, there's a few evidences in our passage. Firstly, I'd point us towards the evidence of the Roman soldiers. Now, to bring about death more quickly, the legs of the victims could be broken to stop them from pushing up to, to breathe out. And we read in our passage that the Jewish leaders went to Pilate and asked that he might order the legs of the victims, the three victims on the cross, be broken to speed up the execution so their bodies could be removed. Well, why? Well, we read that because at sunset that day, which is Good Friday, the Sabbath would officially begin. And it wasn't just any, any normal Sabbath, but this was a high Sabbath because it was a Sabbath of the Passover. So a very important day in the Jewish calendar. So we're told the Romans came and they broke the legs firstly of the first criminal and then of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead. And so they did not break his legs, which we then read later on is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. But we're going to look at the significance of that later on. These soldiers were experienced in the matter of execution and particularly crucifixion. They knew when a crucified victim, when the crucifixion had brought about death because they'd seen it so many times before. But we read that they left nothing to chance. And when they saw that Jesus was already dead, they took a spear and they pierced his side. And we read that this flow, a sudden flow of blood and water came out. And as the Romans were such experts at death, we can surmise that the spear was intended to pierce the heart of Jesus to ensure he was truly dead. Now, as the victims on the cross were slowly dying from the stress uh, that was put on their body for the difficulty in breathing, it would cause fluid to gather around the lungs and the heart. So as the soldier removed the spear, this fluid or, or water, as John describes it, and then blood come rushing out from the pierced heart of Christ. And again, we'll look at the significance of this in, in a moment. Back in the book, A Case for Christ, our author, the skeptical journalist, at this point in the interview, then asks the expert, at this juncture, what would Jesus' condition have been? Dr. Metherell's gaze locks on Lee Strobel as he replied with absolute authority, there is no doubt that at this point, Jesus was dead. It's also been suggested that the flow of fluid and blood indicates that, that Jesus died of a ruptured heart, that his heart was literally broken as he took on the enormity of the weight of human sin and of human's rebellion 
against God. But friends, either way, the evidence before us means that we can be sure that Jesus really died because of the brutal efficiency of the Roman soldiers. But we can also be sure because of the eyewitness account of John himself. Because in verse 35, he says, he who bore, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth that you also may believe. John often talks about himself in the third person and here John is saying, I am writing what is true. I'm witnessing to what is true. I'm telling you the truth so that you may believe. And what does John want us to believe? Well, over at the very end of the next chapter, in John chapter 20, verse 31, John says, These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Ever since Jesus rose from the dead, there have been those who sought to deny the resurrection of Jesus by suggesting that he didn't really die on the cross, but he merely fainted, and that he was later revived by the coolness of the tomb. It's something known, you might have heard it, as known as the swoon theory. But the testimony of John recorded for us here through the Holy Spirit leaves no doubt that Jesus had truly died. And so when he was seen alive again, it is proof that he had conquered death and brought in eternal life for all who believe. And I think we can be assured of Jesus' death on the cross because of the level of detail included for us here by John. For it's only in John's account that we read that Jesus' legs were not broken. We read of the spear thrust in his side of the flow of blood and water. And we know that the other disciples had deserted Jesus at the cross. But we know that John was at the foot of the cross because of what Jesus said to him and to his mother about saying, Mother, here is your son. And John, here is your mother. Asking John to look after his mother once he had gone. I wonder, do you think John knew of the medical significance of what he was describing, what he was seeing, this flow of blood and water? I think it's unlikely. So why does John include it? He includes it because that's what he saw. He calls it water because that's what it looked like when it came out. He's writing of what he's seen with his own eyes and he knows what he saw. He may not have understood the significance of the, the medicine behind it at the time, but he records it nonetheless for us here that we may believe. Think on this. If Jesus hadn't died, the Roman soldiers would have come along, broken the legs of the two criminals, and they'd have come to Jesus, and they'd have broken his legs too. And if they had done that, then they would have broken an Old Testament prophecy about the Lamb of God. And if they'd broken his legs, they would have been assured of his death, and they would have not come along and pierced his side, and then another prophecy about the Messiah would not have come to pass. But John says, I was there. It came to pass exactly the way God said it would. And that leads us on nicely to the second point, that Jesus' death was a deliberate act. Now, you might think this is a strange point to labor. Surely, we've established that. The Romans deliberately executed Jesus. And yes, that is true. And I suppose we could say that it was a deliberate act on the part of Pontius Pilate, who condemned Jesus to die despite his misgivings, and his belief that Jesus was an innocent man. Jesus' death was a deliberate act on the part of the Jewish authorities too. And you'll know from your studying John, quite early on in his ministry, we read about how the Jewish leaders sought his death, plotted how they would do away with him, how they would get rid of Jesus. But the fact that Jesus' 
death was a deliberate act was not ultimately due to the work of man, but it was a deliberate act on the part of God himself. Back in John chapter 11, after the raising of Lazarus, we read that Jesus knew that the Jews were plotting his death, so he pulls back from his ministry. He goes quiet for a time. He moves to a, to a quiet town as the pressure builds. We read that he, didn't, he no longer walked openly among the people as he once had. Why did he do that? Was it for fear of the Jews? Not at all, but rather because the time had not yet come. It's only later, at just the appointed time, that we read that he returns to Bethany, which is on the, his roadway to, back to Jerusalem. He returns to the spotlight to, return, to fulfill his earthly mission, to die on a cross for the sins of the world at the time of the Passover. Jesus knew the schedule, for it was the salvation plan made between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to redeem mankind that God himself would pay the terrible price for man's sin and rebellion. So no one took Jesus' life from him, he laid it down. And we know this because, again in John, John chapter 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And more specifically on the cross, we read that Jesus gave up his spirit on a divine schedule. In John chapter 19, verse 30, the verse before our passage today, as in the Matthew account, we read that Jesus released his spirit. In, John, in Luke 23, 46, Jesus cries, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands, and then he dies. Evil men might have been the means by which Jesus died. But be in no doubt of this, Jesus died because he chose to die, to lay down his life. And why? Well, he tells us again in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's you and me. We're the sheep, we're the lost, the wayward, the stubborn, the sinful, the wretched sheep. But praise God that we have a shepherd who was willing to lay down his life for us. And that then leads to our final point this afternoon, that Jesus' death was part of God's salvation plan from eternity past. Now this is really linked to our previous point, that Jesus' death was a deliberate act on the part of God. But now I want us to look more closely at the prophecies we see fulfilled in the passage. Firstly, we'll take the second prophecy first, John tells us that Jesus' pierced side fulfills a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, when the prophet says that the inhabitants of Jerusalem will look upon the one they have pierced. At the cross, we see this prophecy fulfilled. And God foretells these details so that when they are fulfilled, we might look and see how this was God's salvation plan all along, that we might see and believe. But secondly, we read as well, and we had Sally read us the, the passage from Exodus, we read that they did not break his legs. And John tells us in verse 35 that this is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. In fact, it's a fulfillment of a few different prophecies. John is likely specifically referring to either 
John chapter, uh, sorry, Exodus 12, 46, which was part of the second reading Sally gave us, or Numbers tw- 9, 12, both of which relate to the Passover memorial meal, that no bone of the Passover lamb may be broken. We had this read to us, as I said earlier on. And you'll recall, if you take your mind back to Exodus, back to the, the Exodus, how God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt with 10 plagues. And how these plagues built and built until the final tenth terrible plague, the death of the firstborn. God says, I will come myself and I will judge the land of Egypt and they will be found guilty. And death will come as a result in the form of the firstborn male in every household from Pharaoh's palace to the lowest dwelling. But this is God. Who is merciful so he provides a way of rescue the passover lamb and so he instructs the people through his servant moses to take a one-year-old lamb perfect and without defect and at twilight on a specific day they are to slaughter the animal and then use some of the blood to cover the posts and the lintels of their homes exodus 12 13 the blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you are And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And that's what came to pass. Those who believed his word and did as he instructed with the Passover lamb, God's judgment literally passed over their households, and they were not punished. They were saved. Now, you could do a whole sermon in the parallels between the Passover lamb and Jesus, but I wonder if you, you heard any there as I was speaking. The perfect lamb without defect, slain in the prime of their life. Slaughter takes place and then there's darkness. We know that there was darkness in the land when Jesus died. We're told here that the Passover lamb is to be slaughtered at twilight. And they die because of the judgment of a righteous God. But by their deaths, their blood provides the only means of rescue. John the Baptist, when he recognizes his cousin Jesus coming, he says, behold the Lamb of God. The apostle Peter links the Lamb without defect from the Passover with Jesus in 1 Peter 1.19. You can look it up. And in Revelation, John sees Jesus as the Lamb on the throne who looks as if it had been slain. The means of rescue from Egypt for his people was a divine signpost to the true and ultimate Passover lamb, Jesus. Not an innocent animal, but the innocent son of God who came to earth from the heavenly realms in order to live and die on a cross at Calvary so his spilt blood could figuratively cover us and rescue us. He died so that we can live. And that's why Jesus died at Passover time. And that's why not a bone was broken. So we could see the link between the Passover lamb and Jesus. And we could believe that God's plan of salvation was in place before time to redeem you and me. But I think there's a little more to these unbroken bones, which we might miss, because we no longer attach much symbolic significance to bones as the ancients did. There's another Old Testament scripture which speaks of unbroken bones. Psalm 34 says this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Now we scratch our heads at God's pledge to keep all his bones as if that were a comforting promise to one who has already died. But in the Bible, bones are often filled with figurative meaning. And perhaps no bones in scripture are more famous than the bones of Joseph. In the book of Genesis, it ends with Joseph on his deathbed, making the sons of Israel swear to bring up his bones from Egypt to the promised land when God delivers them. And when the nation makes its exodus, we read that that pledge is fulfilled. Moses takes the bones of Joseph with him. And flicking into the New Testament in our passage of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, we read that the writer celebrates Joseph's concern for his bones as a great act of faith. By faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction in, in concerning his bones. And just breaths before Joseph's bones are mentioned in Exodus 13, the people receive this instruction about the Passover lamb that its bones should not be broken in Exodus 12. Another mention of bones centuries later in Ezekiel 37 is about the vision that Ezekiel has of the valley of dry bones. I don't know if that's a passage you know. These were human bones. They were the final remains of people who had once lived, the dry bones representing the lifelessness of God's people. And yet all was not lost because God tells Ezekiel to prophesy. And when he does, flesh returns to the bones and eventually breath returns to the restored bodies and the bones become living people again. What, was, what made dead bones, dead dry bones live again? It was the word of the Lord. In other words, kept bones, unbroken bones, represent the hope of something more, the hope of resurrection. And in his perfect timing, God will reassemble bones, restore flesh and give breath and bring dry bones back to life with resurrection power. So maybe the fact that not a bone of Jesus was broken was also a glimmer of hope on that awful day of resurrection day to come but a few days later. Not a bone of Jesus was broken and his side was pierced. Things that took place that scripture might be fulfilled. It shows us that Jesus controlled every aspect of his dying, showing us that he has power over death, that he is the promised Messiah, and that the cross was God's salvation plan from the beginning. Well, as we conclude, I just want to bring together a few practical applications from our passage. Uh, and I hope we've been able to see as we've looked at what is essentially some tough detail there, uh, tough to read as in it's difficult because of the subject matter and it's quite brutal, um, but there's much found there to cheer our hearts and also challenge us in the week ahead. And I want to think about three C's for application. A caution, consequence, and challenge. Firstly, there's a caution, I think, against outward morality versus inner change. Now, we haven't focused on this at all, but in our passage, remember, the Jewish leaders were meticulous over matters of the law of Moses and the sacredness of the Sabbath. Such is their correctness in these uh, religious duties that they take great pains to see that the Sabbath is not desecrated, particularly this high Sabbath of Passover. So they desire that the crucified bodies uh, make sure they're dead and buried before Sabbath begins. Outwardly, 
these Jews are very religious and they showed great devotion to God and the things of God and yet they hated the Lord of glory when he came. They crucified him on a cross without just cause. God had sent them the promised Messiah and Saviour and they did not receive him nor did they understand his message or the salvation he came to provide. Their hearts were set totally on earthly things, on earthly glory and not on heavenly things. They did not love God whom they outwardly seemed to serve so correctly and they did not know him they worship the worship they had was really for the world they cite these laws about bodies and the sabbath but they miss the fact that in front of their very eyes they're witnessing old testament prophecies being fulfilled i've often wondered this whether any of those jewish leaders who knew their torah so well including the book of psalms did they ever twig when they heard god say Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the first verse of, this, of Psalm 22. If you just look at Psalm 22 alone, the prophecies are amazing. Jesus says this, and then we see the many things played out. The casting of lots for Jesus' clothes. The fact that his hands and his feet were pierced. Did they see that and not twig? Or were they so blind to see? I guess the caution is that we shouldn't let religiosity rigidly sticking to traditions or particular christian practices however wholesome they might be we mustn't let adherence to these things mean that we miss jesus the messiah because those things can't save us but instead we are to look at the cross at calvary and see god's son the perfect lamb who was slain who laid down his life for you and me because as john tells us by believing in him we might have life in his name not by making sure we read our bible every day though we should and it's a great practice not not because we always spend half an hour in prayer every day but by believing in him that we might have life in his name that's the only way we can be saved so there's a caution here next at the cross probably the most obvious thing we see is consequence we see the consequence of sin ultimately the ultimate and severest consequence of sin is death the Bible says that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. But it just doesn't, this doesn't only refer to a physical death, but also to separation from God. We read in Isaiah 59 verse 2, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's the consequence of our sin. And when we look at the cross, we see this played out. Jesus, God's perfect son, died on a cross not just died a human death, but experienced the full weight of the sin of humanity and the Father's righteous anger against that sin and the punishment for it, the separation from his Father. Sin grieves the heart of God. Sin broke the heart of Christ. That's what we see at the cross. And that's why we celebrate communion. That's why Jesus instigated it, to remember that Jesus' body was broken for us that his blood was shed at the cross, that he may pay the price for sin that we should pay. And unless we truly grasp the consequence of our own sin, we'll not understand the necessity of the cross. At the cross, we see the consequence of sin. So a caution, consequence, but finally a confidence. We can have confidence because of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Why? Because at the cross, Jesus dealt with all the consequences of our sin. He really died. We've looked at that. And he really died for you and me. 
The Bible gives us abundant evidence of this. His death for us was deliberate. He gave up his life. It wasn't an accident or a miscarriage of justice. His life wasn't taken from him. His death was God's redemption plan from before time began. We sing that song before the throne of God above that has a wonderful line in it. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. It's an amazing, amazing thought to know that if you're a child of God, your name was on Jesus' heart when he died for you. Those words are an echo of something God said in Isaiah 49, 15, when the people think God has forgotten them. The Lord replies, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Have confidence, brother and sister in Christ, that you are saved by a deliberate act of Jesus on the cross. But also have confidence, because that is only the beginning of our journey. Because he who begun a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Do we have that confidence in Christ? Do you know and trust him for your future, your eternal salvation? Because at the cross, Jesus did it all for you and for me. That's why he was able to say, it is finished. I'm gonna pray now and then I'll hand back to Sally. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that your finished work on the cross has made a personal relationship with you possible. You are the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. You are the Passover lamb sacrificed so that we might live. Thank you that by believing in you, we can have life in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.